0: All right, if you have your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 10. You guys aware we're, uh, we're bringing 2022 to a close. Um, we'll do this sermon, and then next week we'll start a Christmas series, have our Christmas cantata, uh, and then finish out Christmas, and it'll be 2023. So I don't know if you're ready for it or not, but it's It's here. So I've been trying to think what what helps us transition out of 2022 into 2023. If you've not been here this year, this year we've been really putting this emphasis on five five key values, five kind of core values of our church. It's kind of what this represents, life-giving, gospel-rooted, spirit-filled community where people can belong. And we said that those are the things we want to be in order to be the type of church God created us to be. And so what we're kind of shifting gears from is looking at those things to analyzing how do these values play a part in this concept that we're calling renewal. What does it look like for these values to play a part in renewal? And how does, really, how does God's Holy Spirit empowered people not be renewed? It's a really interesting conundrum, right? I mean, if you look at it and think about it, the church assuming, faithfully believing that all of this stuff is real, that Jesus really did come to earth, he really did live a perfect life, he really did die, he really did resurrect from the grave, and he really offers salvation to anyone that would put their faith in him, and then the Holy Spirit really indwells that person, that means that the reality of God's Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the empowerment of, of his wonderful works within us, the direction of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, of being his witnesses, that all of that stuff is real, Now, if that's real, why is it that it feels like sometimes the church is not always growing? If that's real, why does it sometimes feel like the church is shrinking back? We'll talk about that a little bit today, but last week we asked this question and kind of looked at the process of how renewal happens. So I had this little chart for you. Last week, and we said that this is a general model. We looked at the Old Testament and a story there of how uh, what starts in decline leads to holy discontent. Holy discontent leads to this stage of preparing for God to move. Preparing for God to move moves from consuming to contending. That contending then starts to form holy patterns within a church, within a people, and those holy patterns then help bring us down to a remnant of people who really believe in this. And it's that remnant that brings renewal, both to the church and then bringing renewal to the culture around the church. But here's I think the problem with this. We have this tendency to to go through this process but then accidentally get stuck in one of the locations. We'll get stuck in holy discontent and really instead of being kind of discontent with the world around us what what will happen is we'll just get a little uh we'll use the word crabby, you know just a little pessimistic about everything, this world's bad, everything stinks, I hate it. But we never let it drive us to a holy discontent. We just get stuck in being discontent with everything. Or we move on to preparation and we prepare, prepare, prepare. But the only thing we really want to do is consume within our church. So we'll prepare but it better be good preparation, and the church better offer me what I want it to offer me, and it better be everything I want it to be, and if it's not, I'll go find a different place, and if they don't offer what I want, I'll go find a different place, and we get stuck in this stage, or we never contend, we never form these holy patterns. So, so what is it then, if we're stuck in one of these patterns, if you're stuck in one of these patterns, what is it that pulls us out of that rut? And I think so often what it is is... is We wait until desperation sets in, and then that desperation forces a pivot in our life or forces a change because we're creatures of habits, right? I mean, I am a creature of habit. This is why, uh, even right here, I always sit right here on this pew. This is my spot. I don't ever move from that spot. Uh, Most of the time, if I'm going to go away from my notes, I'm going to go right here. This is about the furthest I go. Don't. I don't like getting all that far away from my notes. It's scary. So I, I go right here. Uh, when I do invitation, I go right there. It's like every week, exact same thing. And I'm like, why do I do that? I don't know. It's just a habit. It's, and like that's even set into my life right now. I have all these habits. Like I got made fun of. I was playing video games online with some friends the other night. Uh, and I was like, it's Friday night. I'm like, oh, guys, it's getting late. I'm going to bed. And like it's 10 o'clock. Well, that's what time I go to bed. I'm like it's a Friday. And I'm like, well, that's still what time I go to bed. Like. I go to bed at 10 o'clock every night, wake up about 6.30 every morning. That's just what I do. It's habitually installed into my life. I watch what I want to watch on TV. I listen to the music that I want to listen to on my phone. But here's what I've just recently realized. There is a nuclear bomb about to detonate in my life that's going to destroy every one of those habits. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, we found out recently my wife is pregnant, and that is... Like, what do I do when I don't get to go to bed at 10 every night? What do I do when there's like this small human being waking me up and ruining all of my habits? Something has to come in and pivot us in order for that change to actually get established and move us a little bit forward. Now, obviously, that change is incredibly welcomed in my household. Like, I am ecstatic for it. But here's my point. Sometimes we need crisis. We need that extreme discomfort we need that drastic change in our circumstances to bubble up and the tectonic plates beneath our feet to move, whether we want them to or not, in order to see change. The question is not, will change come? It's inevitable. Crisis, brokenness, all of these things are inevitable points of life. Even just good changes in life are inevitable. The question is not, what, when, they, when will they come? It's, when they come, how will we respond? How how do we attend ourselves to this movement and these changes? And this is what we kind of began to explore last week. How do we respond with the changing of generations, the movement of people? And so I put up this other chart last week too. Uh, Again, stolen from a guy named Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Australia. Um, And he kind of gives this five-generational model. And he says that your first generation is your builders. They have this ethic of sacrifice. They, they dedicate themselves to something bigger. Your second generation comes in after them. They serve what the first generation started. The third generation just kind of assumes that the goodness built from the first two have always been good. So they stand on those shoulders, uh, expecting all the good things without any of the responsibility. Uh, and when they don't ex- uh, accept the responsibility, they don't pass down the responsibility to the next generations, which leads to a generation of neglect. Uh, fourth generation, and then your fifth generation is a generation of grief. They, they kind of bury this thing. And so we, we talked about how, really, in the world around us, we're already kind of in that fourth generation area, and the crisis is starting to set in around us. And this isn't just true for the church. It, it's true for the entire culture. There's crisis that's coming up. There's panic mode that's being initiated. And the question that we're asking is, well, well where are we headed what's the end result of the direction and the trajectory that we're on? And this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that we just came up with, that Mark Sayers pinned down, and is, this is something that's always been around. In fact, uh, I wanted to prove this to you a little bit this morning by showing you a series of paintings. Uh, you know, everyone comes to church so they can look at 17th century paintings, right? That's while you're all here. Exactly. So uh, these are some artwork from a guy named Thomas Cole. He painted in the early 1800s. And so this is the first of five paintings. Uh, The set of paintings is called The Age of Empire. It's actually really cool um, artwork, I think. And I know you can't really see it because it's kind of dark uh, with our screens. Kelsey, can we turn the lights down a little bit? Would that help? We just have to set in the darkness some. A little bit more. All right that'll that'll work a little bit so right here you can see this is this kind of early morning stage of life, and what he's painting is, is the sun's rising there's kind of this overgrown wilderness. There's these kind of clouds of confusion off to the right. And you can kind of see there on the right, in the middle of the picture, is this small little settlement. There's teepees, there's a campfire, it's humanity starting to grow. In fact, if it was a little bit darker, you can see some other hunters uh, down at the bottom of the screen. There's one underneath the tree to the right. They're kind of going out into the wilderness, but they're not quite there and conquering what, what is. And then he starts and he paints his second picture, so we'll look at that one. Second picture, humanity's progressed a little bit more. Not only are they living in teepees, but they've started to construct these buildings. So you see this kind of temple complex off in the back. Down at the very bottom of the screen is this bridge that's been built. And it's a little archaic, but it's still there covering this gap. People are wearing clothes now. That's not just hunter-gatherer loincloths, but they've created their own clothing. There's a little boat off in the uh, water back there as they're exploring more. Uh, The sun is about mid-morning. The clouds of chaos are kind of backing away. There's just this stage of life developing. And he gets to his third picture, and this is the pinnacle of what it looks like. He imagines this world where what once was nature consumed, is now human consumed in that the the humans have come in and they've built this empire. They have statues dedicated to people that have come before them. They have just people all over the place. There's a procession of a king marching in across now this immaculate bridge, Uh, all of this stuff, huge buildings, temples. And then it goes to the fourth picture. And the fourth picture is the same viewpoint, but now chaos sets in. They don't know if it's maybe uh, an outer force that's invading or some sort of civil war. But the head of the statue has been knocked off. There's people being pushed into the water, boats being burned. The chaos clouds are back. But this time it's not just clouds, it's smoke from the own human-caused chaos. Everything's falling apart from what they've built. And then he gets to his final picture. And it's back to some semblance of peace, but the peace this time is the moon is up. It's nighttime. The clouds of chaos are coming back in. The once tall, towering buildings have vines crawling up them. What once stood as a powerful building is now nothing. There's your pictures. You can go look up Thomas Cole if you're interested in that. You can bring the lights back up, Kelsey. I I wanted to point that out to you because what Cole's trying to do, Cole's painting in in this early 1800s stage of America The electronic motor had just come out. Travel was becoming more and more easy. There was this mentality of going out and conquering the unknown, spreading American culture, developing society, beating back the wilderness and seeing this wonderful growth. And Cole reflects on this, and he's making this point that, hey, don't just assume that the growth trajectory of power and success and influence is assured for the future. Don't just assume that because it looks good right now, it will always be good. There's actually this tendency that whenever we start developing and we come to this point that we recognize our own power, that we then lean into our own power and are thereby destroyed by our own power. This is what he's saying in 1800s America. I think the same thing rings true today. And the point that he's making here is, hey, understand Every single generation, actually, from generation one to generation five, are all at risk of decline. Every single one of them are at risk of decline. Well, well why? What is it that causes that sort of decline? So, uh, I know you guys are like, I love listening to reading about, watching, seeing 18th century, 17th century paintings, and I love hearing about Roman historians, so that's why I come to church. But Satyrus Juvenile, a Roman historian, reflecting on this pattern. He's, he's in fourth generation Rome, maybe even fifth generation Rome, and he's looking back and he's saying, why did we decline? And he's the one that classically coined the term uh, bread and circuses, if you've ever heard that, that Rome falls apart because everything they became about was distraction and diversion. If we can just feed the people and give them enough entertainment, they won't worry and they'll leave us alone. So we'll just distract ourselves into oblivion, give enough bread, give enough circuses, that will be enough. And it's through luxury and comfort actually that people become corrupted morally. This is a pattern that's been cyclical, ongoing throughout human history. Well, well, what about the church? And that takes us back to our first question then. If this is true for civilizations and organizations and businesses, We can see it be true for the church, but how? I mean, we have the Holy Spirit. Surely the Holy Spirit would keep us from going through this process over and over and over and over and over over again. And yet repeatedly we see that's just not the case. Why? I think there's a complexity of answers there, and we'll look at that, but but I think we have to start with Scripture. We have to start with looking at the story, because all through the Bible— It's normal to find God's people across this pattern of wonderful works of God and pioneering growth, setting into continual decline, renewing into patterns of growth and then falling into patterns of decline back and forth. And really what's interesting is the Bible shows us how quickly these things happen. So even if you look at the book of Exodus, right? And you look at the people of Israel that God comes in. He rescues them out of Egypt. Uh, There's these 10 plagues. It's amazing the power of God. It all comes to this point where God quite literally splits a sea. The Israelite people walk across on dry land. God then uses that sea to defeat the Egyptians. And just like three days later, the Israelites are, I want to go home. I don't like it here anymore if we were back in Egypt, things would be better. They go from seeing this incredible work of God to saying, God, I actually don't believe you can do and provide for me, so I'm going to fall back into my own state of decline. But the thing is, I think sometimes we say, well, that's true for the Israelites, but it's not as true for the church. But the New Testament paints the exact same idea. In Revelation 3, John writes to the Laodiceans, and he says, guys, you're being lukewarm, He says that blazing pioneering spirit which which wanted to follow God has now waned into decline to the church in Corinthian. Paul is writing to a church that was once strong, and now they have all these issues. There's factions. There's people suing one another. There's a guy in love with his stepmom in weird ways, and all this stuff's happening, and it's just brokenness galore. And we start watching these patterns unfold even in the New Testament, But the one passage I want to look at today is in Hebrews 10 because I think it gives us a really interesting example and not just what's happening in decline, but what's the cure for it. So Hebrews chapter 10 uh, is a really interesting book because I would argue, Kelsey, can we put that generation chart back up one more time? I would argue that Hebrews is getting written to a second generation, to a church living in this second generation point of growth and service and all of this other stuff. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses. The spirit has fallen at Pentecost, resulting in all of these wondrous acts. Uh, the craziest of which in my opinion is this movement built on the backs of fishermen, not intellectuals. The kingdom of God has broke loose. It's spreading like wildfire through the Roman Empire, both to Jews and Gentiles. But there's a couple of clues in the book of Hebrews that kind of reminds us that it's written to the generation following these events. So a couple of things. Number one, uh, we see in Hebrews that the author talks about heavy persecution. So in chapter 10 all the way down in verse 32, he says this. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and other times you were uh, companions to those who were treated this way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted joy the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence with which has a great reward for you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what is promised. He's writing to a church that has been enduring all this persecution. So again, a little bit more history and then we'll get into the text. Okay. Historically speaking, we know two uh, Roman em- emperors were really heavy on Christian persecution. The first one was Emperor Nero. Nero came to power uh, in 54 AD. He was kind of the first emperor. They, they all had kind of dabbled in persecution of this. But Nero is the first one to just, I mean, he's burning Christians alive at his garden parties for like lighting it. That's how broken of a guy he is. Uh, So Nero initiates this. He's the one that Peter talks about in his letter at 1 Peter, um, talking about this type of persecution. The second emperor that will come to power, a couple uh, emperors after Nero, is a guy by the name of Domitian. Domitian comes to power in 81 AD. Uh, This is the emperor John talks about in the book of Revelation, uh, that he's talking against emperor Domitian. So that generally gives us two options, that Hebrews was likely to either be written under Nero or under Domitian but we can go on a little bit more for some context clue. Uh, And so the second thing that's a context clue is the author never makes any reference to knowing Jesus personally. So if he was an apostle of Jesus, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but if it was an apostle of Jesus, he would probably make mention of knowing Jesus. In fact, this is the reason I actually don't think Paul writes Hebrews because Paul at other times will make mentions of being an apostle of Jesus, that he laid eyes on the risen Savior in his story on the road to Damascus. So likeliness is this is someone that they don't have that type of encounter with Jesus. Instead, they plead their authority to knowing the apostles. All of that to say If that's the case, this is probably not someone who knew Jesus personally, but instead knew the first generations of apostles under Jesus personally. Meaning, this is being written to a second generation church. This is being written to a people that are in that second generation and the author of Hebrews is actually pretty concerned that even within the second generation, that there's this tendency of dropping away from the church. There's this tendency of decline. So he writes this letter for two reasons. One, he's going to constantly point back to the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Jesus is superior. And then he's going to say, because Jesus is superior, you have to hold strong in your faith to him. You've got to go back to holding on to this reality of the gospel. And that seems normal to us now. That just seems like something you would hear in a sermon, right? Jesus is superior. Hold strong to your faith in Jesus. But contextually think about how weird that is that he's already writing this message. I mean, a mere matter of 30 years, The church has seen the miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. They have seen the reality of the gospel go out and take residence within the Roman Empire. And in just one generation already, this author is saying, guys, you can't forget what you believe. Guys, you can't give up on meeting together. Guys, you can't give up on being the church. It seems like it's not just the fourth generation or the third generation at risk of decline. It's actually every generation. So what's the solution? What's the ingredients? Well, chapter 10 Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another, provoking one another to love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. So, what does it take to prevent a church from declining, whether it's a second generation church, a third generation, a fourth generation church? What's the ingredients? And I think if I could just kind of give a one sentence summary right here, what the author of Hebrew wants us to understand is this renewal demands committed gospel perseverance. So, if you're a note taker, there's all your notes right there. That's all you got to take. Renewal demands committed gospel perseverance. This right here begins with a real, undeniable doctrinal truth of the gospel to know and celebrate. This is what he's been building at. This is why he gives the therefore in verse 19. It's all because Jesus exists to save us from our sins and redeem us and renew us. But true doctrine should always lead to a posture of life, not just a knowledge of belief. And so the point of the therefore is the gospel's real, believe it. But also, it should start making an impact and a difference in your life. Well, what's that difference? Verse 22. He says this, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So, true heart. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So, true heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And with our bodies washed in pure water. So, true heart sprinkled clean, pure body. Now we have to have to understand here is that the starting point of the gospel is full access to God because of the forgiveness of sins. And those conditions then are that we come to God with sincere hearts sprinkled, a uh, sincere heart, hearts sprinkled, and bodies washed. But these are things that are not applications. I think sometimes we make the mistake of the thinking that these are applications, and if we do that, we'll fall into problems in our theology every single time. Because we start with this idea that a sincere heart is an application, where we land is okay. Well, before I approach God, I need to get myself cleaned up, and then make sure there's no hypocrisy in me. Then God will listen to me. That's what I got to start with. Or we think that there's no uh, our. We think that there's this, this outer preparation that we need to do. This outer, like I got to dress this way, look this way, act this way, think this way. Then God will listen to me. The problem with that is verses like Jeremiah 17:9, which says, "Hey, the heart's, It doesn't say hey, but. I'm throwing that in there hey the heart is deceitful above all things and there is no cure the heart's deceitful above all things there is no cure so how do you create a sincere heart when your heart is deceitful and without cure by the way great verse to put on your refrigerator wow philip i feel so good thank you and the answer is you don't You don't have the ability to create a sincere heart when your heart is deceitful and without cure. The only thing that can do that is Jesus himself. It starts with the gospel. Then he says sprinkled clean. It's a reference to the Old Testament purity rites that the high priest would come in and would sprinkle you with the blood of your sacrifice enacting ritual purity so that you could go and worship God in that purity because you were not able to be purified yourself. Something had to die in your place. So who is it that sprinkles our heart, purifying it from the brokenness of uncurable sin and deceit? Jesus, the high priest and the sacrifice himself. And he says bodies washed with pure water. It's, it's a reference to baptism, not that you have to be baptized to receive this, but that the reference is baptism is the transfer, the symbolic transfer of Jesus' grace that has forgiven you as you've died to your sins and been raised again in new life. So it's saying that baptism, that moment that you trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, these are the things that you do to carry to God. Here's the point. Renewal cannot happen without the gospel. Renewal cannot happen without the gospel. I know it sounds so elementary, but if we're not careful, we confuse this idea of renewal with like something like numerical growth. And numerical growth, just so you know, like it can be achieved other, achieved other ways. You don't have to have the gospel to get numerical growth. There are plenty of churches today that, that are going to be far more packed than we can ever imagine that have built their movement not on the gospel but on patterns of numerical growth patterns turning the church into a show to be consumed, attempting to draw people with gimmicks, making everything about relevance at all costs, these types of things. And again, don't hear me saying, like, we shouldn't even be relevant. Like, there is a level of relevancy that's needed to reach the world around us. But if everything we're about is about numerical growth, but we neglect the gospel, we will never achieve renewal. We'll never see renewal happen. It can only work through the gospel. Renewal demands committed gospel perseverance. But there's other words at play here. The second one I would make mention of is the term perseverance. You will not see renewal without perseverance. We already read chapter 10, verse 32, but I'll just remind you here at the end of it. In verse 35, so don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what is promised. Just understand the gospel is not a, hey, ask Jesus into your heart and life gets easy and you never have any hardships ever again. A church that attempts to sell you that gospel, a pastor that says to you something like, hey, just, just believe and the disease will go away. Hey, just have faith and you'll never struggle financially hey, trust in the power of the Spirit and all those issues, they'll just go into glory and you won't have to worry about it. Any pastor that tells you that is lying to you. I'm sorry they're lying to you. And I would say they're probably lying to you because this is a lie that culture has started to peddle as well. We like hearing that idea. Our culture loves to hear the idea that, hey, you can have anything you want anytime you want it. This is what marketing is all about. Welcome to Amazon, right? Like, you want it, order it. You need it, get it. You can have anything you want, anytime you want it. To get good things, you you don't need to go through difficulty. You don't have to go through that phase of awkwardness. To live a good life, you don't need to struggle through tough seasons. You don't have to have pain. In in fact, if you have awkwardness or struggle or pain or tough seasons, those are all indicators that you need to go find something else that will make you feel better. Marriage is hard. And you don't get that happily ever after feeling that Disney promised you, so try it with someone else. That job isn't as fulfilling as you imagined it would be? Well, go do something easier. That hobby you started, you're not a professional already? Well, maybe try something else. Yeah, Everything our culture stands for stands against the necessity of perseverance. But here's the deal. That that first generation mindset of sacrifice, of pioneers, they understand that if the path before us is overgrown, it's probably gonna be hard to navigate. It's probably gonna be difficult to push forward in it. They understand it's gonna carry trial and difficulty, and yet they march forward. Hey, renewal's not here yet, but I'm gonna press on. The culture seems to be going opposite of me, but I'm gonna keep swimming upstream. And here's what happens. Perseverance builds character. This is just biblical realities. James 1 tells us, consider it pure joys when you face many trials because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Then let perseverance finish its work in you so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance brings maturity. Our culture is lacking maturity in some of the worst ways. And that's not just true outside the church, it's true in the church. The author of Hebrew understands that in order to grow, in order to be like Jesus, we're going to have to persevere hard situations. We're going to have to stand in the midst of devastating chaos. But it's not that we stand in that, it's what? We hold on. This is what verse 22 is all about. It says this, or sorry, um, verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering we hold on to the one who does stand. We grasp the Savior and persevere with him. And as we do that, we become people who are committed. That we would be a church committed to gospel perseverance. And here's the deal. As much as uh, the modern Western culture hates the idea of difficulty or discomfort, they really hate commitment even more. Commitment is horrible in the world around us. I mean, they love the idea of commitment. We love the idea of commitment. We love the good intentions that come with it and the feeling of prolonged interest in something. That's that's great. We will good intention ourselves over and over again so that we can maintain the good feeling and validations that we crave. So new year, new me. This year I'm going to exercise regularly. I have great intentions. I'm so interested in it. I'm gonna get good at art this year. I'm gonna learn that other language. I'm gonna stay in that relationship. I am well-intented all the way through. But here's the thing, good intentions don't get you there. Interest does not get you there. Interest wanes, struggle chokes out intent, good feelings fail. The only thing that achieves those things is this word that we sometimes hate, Commitment. The author here is dead set on telling the church, hey, you have to commit. If you want to see renewal, if you want to keep seeing growth, it demands commitment. This is why he says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting together together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. This is something I think every pastor I know is struggling with right now? Because how, how do you help drive people to commitment, to com- being committed, to being at church, coming together, worshiping God, without sounding like you're trying to guilt trip people? Uh, I was looking through an old bulletin. Uh, this is from uh, 1950, if you're interested in that. But I was looking through these because uh, here, here was on the cover of our bulletin, uh, December 3rd, 1950. December for Christ. December is the time of year when we are supposed to honor our Lord. Let us make December count in our church. The Christmas season should be a holy season. Make it so by attending church regularly. November was a poor month for our church. Our attendance in Sunday school was low. Our training union, that was like their Sunday night church, uh, was about normal. All teachers in Sunday school and workers in training union need to see that all absentees are visited. And, like, I I get it. A little passive-aggressive, but I, I get it. It's this desperation call of, like, trying to get people to stay attentive and come to church. Uh, In uh, April 8th of 1951, um, let's see, what do they say here? The pastor is back from a revival at Española and will be in his pulpit this Sunday morning. The Sunday school was down last Sunday, and every department needs to do some special visiting for Sunday. Work and pray that we might get past 500 Sunday morning. By the way, they were running 500 in Sunday school. That's pretty crazy. But my point is, like everything they had was all about, we got to get people to show up. we got to get people to show up. And I don't want to come across as if I'm like, we need to show up. You're not loving God if you don't show up to church. That's, that's not what I'm trying to get at here. But I will say this. A first-generation pioneer who longs for renewal will carry with them a different mindset. Say, I want to show up to this. I want to be a part of this. I think one of the biggest threats facing the church today is this cultural lack of commitment. Oh, we still long for that committed church. We want that service to be dynamic. We want other people to show up. We want it to feel full. We want that missions project to be functional, but we want it on our terms. So the church should be full and relevant, covered with people who love Jesus. And I'll be there too. Something better doesn't come up. Again, please don't hear me saying you need to attend church more and if you don't, God will be mad at you. God's love for you is unwavering. It does not increase when you walk into this building and it does not decrease when you stay in bed on a Sunday, okay? Let's just get that gospel clarity out there. God's love for you is unwavering. But if we wanna see renewal, it demands being committed. If we wanna see change and growth, it demands we lay ourselves down and say, I'm in hey, maybe the music wasn't what I wanted it to be that week, I'll be back next week. Maybe that sermon was horrible and boring and Philip kept talking about satirist juvenile and I don't even know who that is, but I'll be back next week. Maybe no one else showed up, but I'm still here because I wanna see this church renewed and I'm committed to showing up. Do you know why First Baptist exists? And I don't just mean like the philosophical like why, but just a very practical why this building is here. It's because there is 120 years worth of history of people that, that would meet together for financial planning meetings, committee meetings. There's 120 years of conflict and worry, story after story of men and women sitting around tables planning and organizing. This church exists on the shoulders of committed people. And it can only remain with committed people. That's it. That's the only way it will remain. Nothing is built without commitment. Relationships are not built without commitment. Business is not built without commitment. Jobs are not built without commitment. You don't get a college degree without commitment. It all demands commitment. So renewal demands committed gospel perseverance. That's what it demanded 60 years after Jesus rose again from the dead. That's what it demands now. So there are a million different reasons why you can't make that promise, and I get it. Please understand, I'm not trying to get up here and guilt you and you need to be more committed to coming to church. That's not what I want to say. But I will tell you that the world around you is offering you more patterns and more expectations than it ever has before. Come on, I mean, Netflix expects you to be up to date on all 45 shows they're producing. It's it's miserable, man. Philip, if you watch this show, I don't even know what show you're talking about. I can't keep up with one show right now. Your boss expects you to reply to that email at 8.45 at night. That's horrible. I don't want to respond to work stuff at 8.45 at night. Your professor expects you to attend that class, watch that two hour video online, and read that seven books. Your kids expect you to be able to make it to every single sport, which practices every single night. Oh, and by the way, if you're not meeting all of those expectations, the problem lies with you, you're not living a high performance lifestyle enough. No wonder we're being driven into oblivion. No one can keep up that pace. And if you're thinking in your mind that I'll just commit to church on top of all of these other things, it will fail. Because if church is just adding another 12 things to your list, just get ready. It's not going to be fun. The only means this happens is that the gospel totally changes us to be nothing like our world around us. We embrace the idea of perseverance that even when it's hard, we stay in this thing and we commit ourselves to what God is doing. If you want to see First Baptist Church renewed, if you want to see this town changed, this is the only way it happens. This is it. There's no other option. It doesn't compute with the world around us that tells us we can have it all. It doesn't compute with, hey, you can have a kid that's an All-State in every single sport. You can have the perfect progressing career. You can have all the relevant knowledge of every show and movie. You can have the endless understanding of everything that's going on. It won't work. It begins with you saying, I have to commit myself, which will usually require you saying, I need to give up these things. I don't know your life. I don't know what it is you have to give up. But if you want to see First Baptist renewed, it means that we take on a posture of a first or second generation, that we become sacrificial serving people here to contend for the sake of portalis, to love those who desperately need love, to tell the gospel to those who desperately tell the gospel. Because I believe when we give up ourselves, when we commit to God and we persevere, that it's actually God who starts to change things. Not our power, not our influence, but it's God who changes first within us and then bringing that change to the world around us. So I would just end with this. What if? What if as all of the churches around us And the churches around America are fumbling to figure out what to do. While they're mourning a generation that's strayed away. What if God starts something new at First Baptist? What if First Baptist becomes a place where people from every generation come to worship God? What if God starts doing something in gospel perseverance? What would that look like? But it starts with you. It starts with me. Because corporate renewal is always built on individual renewal. So where are you? What needs to be given up? What needs to be embraced so that you can be someone committed to gospel perseverance? I'm gonna be up here, I'd, I'd love to pray with you about that. Maybe you just wanna pray from your seat, but how can you be in someone that just embraces this idea of an individual committed to gospel perseverance? Father God, I pray that you would help make us like the Hebrews church. God, even in the second generation, as they were struggling with people not showing up, that you were already at work doing something in that. God, I pray that you would be at work even here. Help us to understand that perseverance matters, even in the difficulty, even in the heartache, even in the pain, that you are still in control and we get to still love and worship you. God, help make us a church of committed gospel perseverers. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand.